Well, good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Hey, my name is Pastor Jeremy. I'm glad you're here to worship with us, together with us today. I got a little story for you. It goes like this. See if you know it. And if you do, feel free to shout it out whenever it comes to mind. As soon as you got it, go for it. First one wins. Ready? All right, ready? Not yet. <laughs> I haven't started. All right. Chug, chug, chug. Puff, puff, puff. The little train ran along the tracks. There we go, the little engine that could. Very good. She was a happy little train. Her cars were full of good things for boys and girls. There were all kinds of toy animals. You know the rest. It's a great story. It's a beautiful story that we read to our children, trying to inspire them and trying to encourage them that hard work, effort, perseverance, and a heart that's willing to help will really pay off in the end because at the conclusion of the story, the train gets over the mountain and she delivers her car full of all the good things to play with and to eat to all the little boys and girls, and they're happy ever after. Everyone is flourishing. Today, the story that I'm going to point you to is a little bit different than that, but has some things in common, and one of the things is the theme, and this is the theme. The theme is that patience and passion lead to eternal flourishing. Patience and passion lead to eternal flourishing. Now, as a rhetorical guy, I, wanted to, I really wanted to say patience and passion lead to prosperity, but I just couldn't bring myself to say that given all the current teaching and broader Christian circles of today. I want to stay true to what I'm trying to say and what the text is trying to say. We're not talking about work hard and hang in there and you'll make a lot of money and everything will be okay. We're saying that your eternal home in heaven, what is guaranteed for you, is going to require hard work now, but not just hard work. If it's just hard work, you're going to be miserable. It goes beyond that. It's patience and passion that will lead to eternal flourishing. So we're talking to the people in Midland and mid-Michigan today, but we're also talking to the people in Ephesus, and it's kind of the same. In a lot of ways, I would say we are this church. Now, I might say that next Sunday, so who knows, but for this Sunday, as I read this text and I look at it, I say, wow, we have a lot of things in common with the people living in Ephesus. At Ephesus at that time, it was what... what was happening was this, is basically this is a major city. In other words, um, the only city in the Roman Empire that carried more clout or more weight was the city of Rome itself. Otherwise, Ephesus is the place. And the reason is because it's situated at the crossroads of the trade routes between the west and the east. So if anything is being imported from the east to the west or anybody's going out east from the west, they're going through this port city. It's a little like New York City way back in the day. Like everything has to come in through this port. And as a result, there are tons of people. There's tons of money. There's all different kinds of cultures. There's all different kinds of gods. There's all different kinds of philosophies and thinkings and languages. It's this giant mix of a melting pot, a huge population, and all kinds of crazy things going on. So if you went to the corner of Ephesus, it'd be like the corner of a major city today. You'd see a 
you know, a, a Hindu temple, you'd see a Baha'i temple, you'd see a mosque, you'd see a synagogue, you'd see a church, you'd see some um, hippie eclectic thing over here, I don't even know what to call it. You would see everything. And that would be Ephesus. But the one dominant feature would be this, would be the gargantuan temple to the goddess of fertility named Diana. Now, if you want to look up that online, be careful. There are pictures that you will see that I cannot show on Sunday morning. Let me just say Las Vegas and Ephesus, very similar. This is a pagan cult that celebrates fertility in the ways that you imagine pagans might with temple prostitutes, etc., so it is a messy place. It is a disgusting city. It is dirty, dirty, filthy, lewd. It is populous. It is rich. It is opulent. It's crazy. And there is this little church. This little church that was started long ago on Paul's missionary journeys, perhaps with Lydia or perhaps somewhere else. But here is this little house church that's growing in this city. And one of the interesting things is, now I'm saying Paul because that's on Paul's missionary journeys. This is a book of Revelation. John is writing this book, but to the same people. This church, Ephesus, shows up everywhere in the New Testament, in Acts, in other places. Here's one in particular I want to show you. When Paul leaves Timothy there as sort of a church planter to be sort of like a bishop, he's going to start this church and then oversee a bunch of other churches. He specifically says to Timothy this. He says, now, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.2, watch out, buddy, because the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is intense. This is not accidental. This is spiritual warfare. Timothy, you're going into an area that you will plant seeds, and it's not like you're going to plant them and look the other way because they're just going to grow. Somebody's going to try to come in and pluck out those seeds. There are people that are working for Satan himself that intentionally want to deceive the young Christians in that area. And so you have a very important job. You need to preach the word. You need to be ready in season and out to rebuke and exhort and hold the line. Timothy, fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Don't give in for a minute. And this was Timothy's charge. So Timothy goes there and he does that. He does it very, very well and he carries out that charge. And so when you begin to read this letter, now, so that was Paul telling Timothy to do something. Now it's later and you see what's happening in this church is that these people have got that. They've, they've, hung, they've hung in there. They've, they've held tight. They've followed that teaching. As a result, what's going to happen is um, John, the apostle, is going to praise them for that. But it's a little bit like, and I hate to use this word, but I'm going to, it's a little bit like a performance review. What he's going to do is going to say, okay, come in here, group. Your group is working on this. You're the Ephesus group. Okay, and Paul's just flown in from wherever. You're the Ephesus group. Group, here's what you're doing well. Here's what I'm going to praise you for. Hanging in there. But there's things you need to improve. And if you do, there's an incentive for you at the end. I have a big bonus check coming, if you will. There is a promised payoff. But in order to get that payoff... This is where you need to shore up your loose ends. 
So that is what's happening here in Revelation chapter 2, in beginning in verse 1, with the first church in, in Asia Minor in Turkey. This is Ephesus, the Ephesians. Jesus is coming to them, and he is saying this. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. It says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the seven churches. He says this right away, because I'm among you, because I'm there, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested, remember that Timothy thing? Those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Good job. Way to go, team. Here's your praise. But, verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, a lampstand's a lampstand, right? But what happens if that lampstand goes out? Boom, you just move it. You don't need that anymore. You can get another one. Church, don't let that be you. Are there big churches in Turkey today? Not really. What happened? At some point, their lampstand went out and they got moved somewhere else. What's going to happen in the U.S.? I don't know. Don't let it go out. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Uh Uh-oh, look at this. Which Jesus says, I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All kinds of amazing stuff going on there. Last week, I purposely pointed out to you, here's a spot where Jesus says he loves. Now I'm purposely pointing out to you the other end of the scale. This is a spot where Jesus says he hates. What does Jesus hate? Does he hate people? No, he gave his life for people. What does he hate? He hates evil. He hates the works of the Nicolaitans. He despises it. In fact, if you watch throughout Scripture, what happens is God often warns people, hey, don't come into my presence if you're not clean and covered by the blood of the Lamb. If not, I'm going to have to break out against you because God hates sin. And if sin comes into his presence as is required of him, he will lash out against it and destroy it. That is what a holy God does. That's how he conquers. That's how he overcomes. If he didn't do that, the devil would win. You you want him to attack what is bad, but don't let it be you. And so here in this passage, he says specifically, Jesus says he hates. He hates evil. He hates the work of the Nicolaitans. And he praises this church for being like him in that. They held true to the faith. They maintained their doctrine. They rejected all the other false teachings that were surrounding them, whether they're pagan cults or deities or whatever else. They maintained the truth, yet at the same time, they were struggling. So, four things that Jesus says he praises. Let me give you those four things, and I'm going to drill down on one. 
Uh, he praises, number one, their works in general. You guys are doing a pretty good job. Their toil, you guys are working hard. And your patient endurance, that's the one I'm really going to go after. And then this one in verse 4, which I just talked about. They cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested them as Timothy was instructed to do. So today, the way in which I will walk us through this passage is this, in three parts, sort of like the performance review, there is a praise, improvement, and incentive. The Ephesians are given praise for their patient endurance, they're called to improve their passion, and the incentive is the tree of life, which I'll explain to you what that is in a little bit. But there is patience, passion, and the incentive or the tree of life. Here's a little basketball story for you if you like basketball. It's one that didn't necessarily happen in the NBA or in college hoops, but it did involve one person who had played in both arenas, and that one person's name is Craig Robinson. Does anybody know who Craig Robinson is related to? No? Do you know where he played? No? Okay. He played at Princeton, and then eventually he was a head coach at Oregon State, and then he moved from there into the organization of the New York Knicks. Craig Robinson is the brother of Michelle Obama. Now, I'm promising you I'm not making any political statements one way or another, but this really struck me. I read this article in the Washington Post quite a while back, and it was very interesting when the, uh, President Obama was new to the White House. One of the things they ask in the personal section is, how'd you get to know your wife? And as it turns out, they were uh, attorneys at the same firm. She was his senior. He was a junior, uh, junior member of the firm, and he's pursuing her a little bit. And eventually, they get to the spot where it's time to meet the parents and meet the brother and see how you do. You're being introduced to the family. So at that time, Mr. Obama, not President Obama, but Mr. Obama went to a family dinner and the family's just assuming that Mr. Obama, like all the others, are going to go by the wayside. But at the end, she says to her brother, hey, why don't you take him out and just play basketball sometime? See how he does. And as it turns out, this shows me how brilliant this lady actually is. What, and this is a little bit of artistic license, but I'm pretty sure here's what really happened. <laughs> she said, now, Craig, I want you to bump him up a little bit. You know, put a body on him. Give him an elbow once in a while. Maybe trip him. See what happens when he gets down and out, when he's fouled, when he's upset, when he's losing, when things aren't going his way. Watch and see how he reacts, and then come and tell me. And sure enough, now that might have been a little masala, but this much is true. The, Craig comes back to her and says, look, he's a team player. He's a hard worker. He's not a ball hog. I don't know what he is everywhere else, but on the basketball court, he's a good guy. And sure enough, what do you get? Mr. and Mrs. Obama. (laughs) But the thing is this. Listen, ready? In the crucible of competition, your character comes out. See that? I just did basketball and chemistry at the same time. Like that? In the crucible of competition, your character comes out. You know, when you're under pressure and the fire is getting hot and you're getting knocked down, How are you going to react? That's going to show a lot about you. Are you the same person when you're on top of the game as you are on the bottom of the game? This demonstrates your real character, your integrity, your heart of hearts. Guys, how would you have done 
If you had to face the Michelle Obama test, would you have passed? Here's what happens in this text, is that this church is under pressure. And yet, despite the fact that it appears that everything is crunching in and crowding them out and coming down on top of them, that they are hot and sweaty and tired and taking a hit, that they're being fouled, they're still hanging in there and holding true. And Jesus says, I praise you for that. You are the same person through and through, in and out, regardless of whatever circumstance you're in. And that's good. These are the characters in 310 to Yuma or Gladiator or True Grit. The one who, whether he's at the top of the career ladder commanding the army or the bottom of society in prison about to be fed to the lions is exactly the same all the way through. This is character. This is integrity. This is patient endurance, hupomene, steadfastness. A dictionary definition of it sounds like this. It is a deeper commitment of character that manifests itself in various situations with staying power, constancy, and determination under adversity. It is a person who is not swerved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to faith and piety, even by the greatest trials and sufferings. Ephesus, believers, Be encouraged. This is you. If you are still coming here on Sunday morning, I know there's a lot of things to distract you and you want to do something else. When I was praying for you before this very service, I was saying, God, I know we're not perfect. Here come your people. We're ready to worship. We're here. Take that as proof that we do want to worship because I know there's so many other things you could do on Sunday morning, but this is it. You chose to be here. You are enduring and you said no to everything else and you showed up Be encouraged. Be praised. You're persevering. That's good. Hang in there. Keep going. Don't quit. Persevere. Sunday after Sunday, day after day, week after week, year after year. Keep going. Don't quit. Patient endurance is required. Patient endurance is required to survive, but passion is required to thrive. You see, if all we do is endure, eventually we're just going to look like this. You know, we're just gritting our teeth and bearing it our whole life and we're enduring. (laughs) What fun is that? There's no joy. There's no passion. There's no love. That's just grit. But God wants both. See, in Christianity, sometimes we say silly things and one of the silly things we say is this. We say, you know, well, we're high on truth or we're low on love or we're high on love but low on truth but the reality is the bible combines them both there's no such thing as a dichotomy between the two if you have true love then you have truth and if you don't have truth then you don't have true love and the bible is requiring for our flourishing for our success both at the same time Yes, you endure. Yes, you get rid of the false teachers. But even as you do, you also have to love. And that's what happens in chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, Hey, look, don't forget this, Ephesus. Don't forget this, Midland. If you're holding to the truth, you have to do so in such a way that you do not abandon love. This I have against you, Ephesians, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. As as you know, I'm from Missouri, and uh, 
throughout Missouri, flowing down from Minnesota is the Mississippi River, thus Huck Finn and um, Tom Sawyer and all that stuff. But here's an interesting story I read about a um, distributary or a little spinoff of the Mississippi River in Louisiana. And it's actually a 137-mile-long river, so that's pretty significant. And what it does is it flows all the way through Louisiana and empties into the Gulf Coast. But the thing about this spinoff of the river is that this distributary does not have its own source. So then, whenever the Mississippi is high, that river is high. And whenever the Mississippi is low, that river is low. In other words, what this river accomplishes depends entirely on its connection with the Mississippi. Now, in the book, Creature of the World by Matt Chandler, Josh Patterson, and Eric Greiger, they say this, the church is a lot like this river. Anything of value that she accomplishes is always tied to her source. So if she somehow loses connection with her first love, then she loses all her power. She dries up and empties. And when a church does this, it doesn't matter if they have good programming, good staffing, good decisions, good strategy, good teaching. They've got nothing. The reality is this, church. Listen, we have to hold the true doctrine. We can't get away from that. But if we get disconnected from the source, if we lose our first love, if we are no longer passionate about Jesus, we've got nothing. What are we going to invite them to? Well, we've got great guitarists. So what? The world has great guitarists. Well, we've got great children's programs. Well, so what? So does Nickelodeon and Disney and everything else. Well, we've got great... No, no, no. You know what great we've got? We've got Jesus. That's it. That's the one thing we have to offer the world above anything else. I listen to Christian radio and sometimes it makes me sick. (laughs) Truthfully. I listen to this one thing. It's advertising this event at some theme park and they're like, they sound like WWF. They're like, we're going to have the best bands. We're going to have the best speakers. We're going to have the... Well, la, 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 la. And I'm like, is Jesus anywhere in there? Because the world's got really cool bands too. And the world's got smoke and fog. And it's got lights. And it's got everything else. But what you win them with, you win them too. And we're not trying to win them to all those other things. We're trying to win them to Jesus. And so in all of our events, all of our programming, all of our efforts, we cannot forget our first love, and that is Christ himself. It has to be clear. We're nothing without him. We dry up and go away. Dead. Boom. Worthless. Candlestick. Somewhere else. doesn't matter how big we are, whatever. The only thing we have to offer is Jesus. We have to remember our first love. Look, it's the same way in your human relationship. If you're married, every year you have something called an anniversary. At which time, guys, it's time to be romantic. I don't care if you think you're not romantic. This is your chance. Do whatever you can possibly think of to be romantic. Surprise is excellent. If your wife likes surprises, if not, disregard 
Pursue with passion. Don't lose your first love. Yes, it's true. You said, I do. But it's not over there. You need to continually, over and over again, renew your vows, renew your love, be romantic, give it your best shot each and every day. At anniversaries especially, because throughout the year it's busy and not every day can be a celebration, not every day a feast. But this one needs to be. Here's a special moment. So too in the church, we have the same thing every quarter, and that's called the Lord's Supper. In your anniversary, you look back and you remember the first love that you had. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. We were newlyweds. We were so excited. It was great. We didn't care, blah, blah, blah. And you look back at the Lord's Supper and you say, wow, this is amazing. Look at what Jesus did. When I was a new Christian, I didn't care. I lived like you wouldn't believe. And wow, look what I have coming. It's so great. Each year is better and better. That's an anniversary and that's the Lord's Supper. But I can't have an anniversary and the Lord's Supper every day. So what do I do? I got to say I love you. I got to say you're meaningful. I got to say you're valuable. I got to listen to my spouse. And when I do, that's when she feels validated and that's when she feels like we're connecting emotionally. So what do you think you need to do as the bride of Christ? You need to listen to your bridegroom and you need to spend time with him and you need to connect emotionally. He's speaking to you right now and he's doing it through his word. So when you listen to the Bible, this is from BSF in the female Bible study, your heart connects with God's. Why do you study your Bible? Because it connects your heart with God's. So you have these big moments, these giant celebrations like the Lord's Supper and Christmas Eve. Those are the big ones. But you also have the little moments each and every day like your personal worship, your daily devotion, your Bible study, your prayer. You've got to connect over and over and over again because if you don't connect, that source is going to go dry and you will die. You have to maintain your first love. It's the only way to thrive. And when you do, that river flows and there's new life and there's no stench of a dead, rotting thing, but instead, there is real. We got a lot of cool stuff, but the coolest thing, the best thing, the only thing we have as a thing that is connected is the thing itself, Jesus. So then, we praise you for your patience and your perseverance. We commend you to improve your passion. And we incentivize or encourage you that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, for those who have patience and passion, for those who persevere, this will lead you to the tree of life. See, what happens is this, on the, in that little story, the little engine that could, it breaks down. And this is where it breaks down theologically too is because what we're trying to teach kids is, you know, persevere, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But at some point as an adult, you realize, wow, I thought I could. I thought I could. I couldn't. I tried and I tried and I tried. It wasn't enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Who will help? And I suppose like the other train, we could break down on the side of the road and everybody could just cry. Because the reality is we can't make it over that mountain. We can't. We need someone else to come pull us along. And surprisingly, it's not the big shiny one. It's not the big strong one. But it's this little humble thing that takes a cross and dies in our place. All of a sudden we realize, wow, he just did what I could never do. Doesn't make sense. I don't get it. It's not the big shiny, it's not the big strong, but it's the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, who conquers and overcomes. 
We let that train pull us and we're connected to it. And all of a sudden we're brought to a place we could never achieve on our own where there is eternal flourishing, where there is good things for boys and girls. There is all the pleasures that we could ever imagine forevermore. And that's the tree of life. We're brought over the mountain from this life into the next and we realize that there's the lamb and there's the tree and he's overcome and now we can see. And before when we were like, man, money does not grow on trees. I keep trying. It doesn't work. My needs aren't being met. All of a sudden we get to heaven and we're like, actually it does. There's the tree. There it is. And I'll have to reach up and if I have a need, I can just grab it because it's low-hanging fruit. I feel lonely, pluck. I feel hungry, pluck. I feel thirsty, pluck. I feel tired, pluck. There is this thing that symbolizes life in the center of the Garden of Eden in God's perfect state. There is this thing that symbolizes life in the center of the New Jerusalem in God's perfect state. And that thing, the tree of life, is what we are all desperately reaching for. We want to flourish. We want to be happy. We want to reach that fruit, but in this life we just can't. And yet there is this other train that comes and pulls us along and drags us, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, to the other side. And there we see, ah, man, all this hard work, all this perseverance, all this suffering, all this toil is finally worthwhile. And where I was, broken down on the side of the road, unable to move, crying like one of those little toys, I hear this voice. It says this in Revelation chapter 5. Weep no more. Fear not, little flock. Stop. Behold, here comes the engine that can. The lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This one has conquered. See, there is an incentive, but I can't get there. I need someone stronger than me. I need a strong man to defeat the enemy. Luke chapter 11 says it like this. When there is a strong man like Satan, fully armed, he guards his own palace and his goods are safe. There's nothing I can do. But when one stronger than he, that's Jesus, attacks him and overcomes, same word, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Good things for all the little boys and girls. Take heart. Take heart. John, the author of Revelation, remembers Jesus saying, take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. We want to overcome. We really do. But we can't without Christ, our overcomer. Endure, be passionate, and Follow Him. And what you will see is this, just like this slide. Oops, sorry, the patient endurance one. Structure. Overcoming leads to the tree of life. It's not me who overcomes. It's me and my connection to Christ. Who then is it that overcomes? Revelation 2.7 gives us the promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life. That's what I want. That's what you want, which is in the paradise of God. Well, who then is it, John? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the conquering king, Christ triumphant. He is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance on the other side of the mountain that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you, if necessary, have been grieved by various trials, so that tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire in the crucible of competition may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus though you have not seen him you love him though you do not see him now you believe and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible filled with glory attaining the outcome salvation of your soul.